The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. Well, as Pastor Rick mentioned, my name is David Carter. I get to be one of the pastors here. I'm the executive pastor. And if you're a guest with us this morning, I'm sorry. Uh, Not because I am preaching. I love preaching, but rather pastor stuck me with a controversial passage. So if we don't see you next week, we love you. Hope you come back. But a long time ago, a long time ago, it feels like a long time ago, I used to get asked the question, how has Jesus changed your life pretty often? In fact, I've even asked others that question whilst uh, disciple making. And the hard part is I cannot remember a time where I walked away from that question satisfied with the answers, either my own or those of others. The responses, and again, this is my own responses as well, usually fell into the same few categories. There's that future hope. Jesus changed my life by saving me, by altering my eternal destiny. I have a home waiting for me. There's the present comfort. We just sang about that, right? I know he's always with me. And then there's the practical change. The only practical change I ever really heard, not very often. Because of Jesus, I go to a building. I meet with a bunch of people once a week or once a month to sing songs I probably wouldn't normally sing and listen to a person talk for longer than most videos I watch. And you know what? Those are all true. Those are all ways in which Jesus changes our life. They're also good. I mean, it is amazing to think that I have a Savior, that Jesus has saved me from my sin and he saved me for himself. And it's just, it's an amazing thing to know that he's with me today. But is that the extent to which Jesus transforms our lives? Is that the extent to how Jesus changes us? A future hope, a sense of comfort? Because I mean, as Christians, our constant message to the world, to each other, is that Jesus is better than everything out there. We sing that very song, that Jesus changes lives. But is it true? Did you choose differently this week because of Jesus's better way? Has he really changed how you lived your life this past week? Or to put it another way, I often hear Christians say, you know, the way I share my faith is through my life. But honestly, does your life really look any different than your neighbor's? These days, there's, uh, there's two primary ways of looking at the world, and that's, they shape the very world that we live in. Those two philosophies are atheism and secularism. Atheism, you're probably familiar with. It's the rejection of a belief in God. And, and so it explains everything materialistically. And by materialistically, I don't mean that shopping is the answer to everything. I mean that only, the only thing that, that is here is what is physical what we can touch, what we can measure. Secularism is the belief that humans have, through their ability to reason, all they need to rightly interpret and structure the world around them. And so there's a corollary to that. And that secularism states the state and the public sphere must remain free from the influence of church and religion. In the rejection of the supernatural, together these two philosophies force God into the background of life at best. But oftentimes they dismiss him entirely. 
This, friends, is the air that you and I breathe here in the West. It's the water we swim in. It's the default way of looking at the world for most, if not all. And we Christians are just as influenced by these two worldviews as everyone else. Because what's funny is that most people aren't actually atheists. Instead, according to author and theologian Craig Gay, practical atheism has become the most common approach to life. We are now a people who live as if God does not exist, as if God is irrelevant to most of life. Even in the Western church, many and maybe even most of us are what John Stone Street calls secularists with a twist. We are people who believe in God and hope to go to heaven when we die, but who live lives that are largely indistinguishable from everyone else. Friends, you and I have steeped in this world for so long that even as Christians, we now agree with the secular conviction that faith belongs to the realm of the private, the personal, and is irrelevant to larger questions about reality or truth. And so the question, how does Jesus change us, is now a silly question. Jesus changes our heart, and that's about it. And we're okay with it. But I'm not. That agitates me. Like, it keeps me up at night, our practical atheism. It's one of those things that I wrestle with God about in prayer, as I pray for you, as I pray for our church, as I pray for myself, because I too can become a secularist with a twist. Like, how can we be a people who genuinely trust in Jesus and then live like he doesn't exist day to day. I mean, do you remember the city of Ephesus? We've been reading that letter recently together, Uh, but go back to Acts. Like, okay, Ephesus, the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus saves souls. The, The Holy Spirit falls upon the city and the entire city is transformed. Because of Jesus, new Christians changed how they lived, how they spent their time, how they shopped, and their transformation flipped the entire economy of Ephesus upside down. I mean, the change was so dramatic that the people profiting from sinful gain rioted. And they did so not because a couple of Christians got into political positions and passed some laws. It was the Spirit changing everything in Jesus' people. Could you imagine if that were to happen today? Like, people in Denver, the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus saves souls, the Holy Spirit falls, they get transformed by Jesus, and suddenly the strip clubs close, the porn sites go dark, the abortion clinics shut down, there's no more illicit drug use, all because no one wants what they have to offer anymore. Could you imagine a transformation like that? This isn't myth either. It's not legend or exaggeration. It's history. I mean, we go from 150 people cowering in a room in uh, 33 AD, and from that, Christianity grows to 35 million people by 350 AD, more than half the population of the Roman Empire at the time. And the whole time that it's growing, Christians were mocked, killed, defrauded. So how could it grow? Why would it grow in the midst of all of that? There's no reason to be a Christian in 125 AD and 250 AD. Well, one philosopher, Aristides, had this to say as he wrote to Caesar Hadrian about Christians in 125 AD. They're oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. The people that are taking them to be fed to the lions, who are strapping them to poles to be set alight with torches, they're like, it's okay. They're comforting them. 
Their men keep themselves from every unlawful union in hope of a better life. Like these are guys who don't have a mistress. They're not committing adultery. Sex is for one thing. If one or other of them have slaves, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. Socioeconomic divisions don't exist. From widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. The Christians cared for the most vulnerable, the very old, the very young. Elsewhere, uh, there's a letter to Diognetes and says, uh, they give each other in marriage as other men, but they just don't kill their children. Like, that's a surprise. Instead, the Christians would go out to those little girls that were left exposed, and they would take them home, and they would raise them. When they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. If they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. Listen, back then, prison was not three square meals in a gym. It was a hole with bars. And you didn't get fed unless someone took care of you. And so the Christians would go and they would feed those that were in prison. And if one of them was in there for a debt, they would gather together, they'd collect the money, they'd pay him and set him free. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy, and if they, the Christians, have no spare food, then the Christians fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Do you hear how markedly different these people were? How much Jesus changed in them? They were doing things then that were we to do them today, we would be called crazy. Let, let a stranger into my house? Like let them stay the night? That's dangerous to my family. How could I do that? So if the Western church's practical atheism agitates me, then this is what gets me excited. This is the people of God living out the kingdom of God here and now. This is the power of Jesus pushing back the darkness through those who belong to him. This is the church actually being the church, Christians following Christ. So what happened? How do we go from Aristides Christians to practical atheists. Because as far as I can tell, it's the same God, the same Jesus, the same gospel, the same spirit. What happened? I have a lot of thoughts on that one, but just for today. I believe it's just that the pattern of this world has carved deep grooves on our hearts, our souls, and our minds. And it's become so familiar and so comfortable to us. And the enemy has made us drowsy and distracted enough that we don't think to question what in our expression of faith is actually from Christ and what is of the world. As we follow Jesus, we don't ever ask, is this actually Christ or is this the world with Jesus' clothes on? We've adopted the means and the values and the weapons of the world in our pursuit of Christ, defaulting to old thoughts, attitudes, and actions, because that's just what we know. I mean, it's not a malicious, deliberate choice on our behalf. For most of us, it's just, it's largely ignorance. We don't know what we don't know. Or it's inertia. We've always done it this way. But brothers and sisters, this is not the life Christ has for his people. By settling for secularism with a twist, we miss out on a depth of life and experience in Jesus, the abundant life. And so if your practical atheism bothers you, like it bothers me, 
then let's do something about it. And thankfully, we have this letter to the Ephesians that gives us a primer in how we can move into a life completely transformed by Jesus. And it all starts by recognizing just how much Christ has transformed in in you or how much he has transformed all of you. Because that's how Paul begins. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been walking through Ephesians. We've been doing it for a while, and I'm very glad we're going verse by verse. But in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Paul exhaustively describes the beautiful, powerful, amazing gifts of God gifted you in Christ, purchased for you by Christ. You were dead in your sin, but God made you alive together with Christ. You once followed the prince of the power of the air, but now you belong to a whole new king. You were a child of wrath. Now you're a child of God. You were once far off, separated, alienated from God, but in Christ, now you have been brought near. He has made you, friends, a new humanity, a new kind of human. You are now a citizen of heaven, a member of the family of God, a member of the body of Christ. You have put off the old you and put on a new you created after the likeness of God. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Do I need to go on? Because there's a whole lot more in chapters one through three that we could cover. But I hope you're starting to get the picture. Jesus has done far more than just change your heart. He has changed everything about you. And there are some severe life-changing implications to that. Like what, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you did, because that's where we're going next. So what does a corpse do, friends? Absolutely diddly squat. It lays there, it rots. Now, if that corpse was to suddenly come to life, what could it do now? Well, it can move, it can hear, it can speak. Friends, if you have been made alive in Christ, then you have new faculties you didn't have before. When you're in darkness and you walk into the light, what happens? You can see. You can see clearly. You have a whole new sense to work with. And so friends, as those gifted and filled with the Spirit of God, we have a whole new capability to see and understand the world differently. Like when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 and 18, he says, you must no longer walk, because this is how you were walking, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. He says that the implication then is that as a new being, your thinking is no longer futile or fruitless. You can think rightly. Your understanding is no longer darkened, but now in Christ, we can see the world rightly as God designed it to be. With that new sight and the power of the Spirit, we can also live out God's design in the world. Jesus doesn't simply save you from your sins and save you for an eternity with him, though that is a beautiful and amazing thing. He doesn't only change your heart. He makes you new. Now, I know some of you might think, well, David, those are just metaphors, and you're taking them way beyond what this text says. Okay, well, let's do this. Ephesians chapter 1. You have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How many of them? Every one. One of those, he says later on, is that you have been sealed with the Spirit of God. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 16, 6 through 16, Paul goes into this conversation of that only the spirit of a person knows that person. And so no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And guess what? 
you have the Spirit of God. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? We have the mind of Christ. And so, yes, there is something in you different now, such that you can see, you can discern God's design and live into it. You are no longer a natural person. You are now a spiritual person, as Paul also says in 1 Corinthians. So because you are new and can discern God's design for the world, there are new ways you relate to the world. And Paul points out a few of them in Ephesians 4 through 6. Beginning in chapter 4, here is how Jesus transform, transforms how we live in community with others. Now specifically, Paul's detailing how do the people of God live with other Christians under the reign of God. He's talking about the church. So chapters 4 and the first part of 5 are all about the church. But he also points out how Jesus transforms how we think about sex, what we joke about and laugh at, how we handle work, how we are to think about and handle anger, how we handle time, how we drink, how husbands and wives relate, how masters and slaves, parents and children, and how we are to deal with the spiritual forces arrayed against us because it's not fiction, it's reality. Do you see the breadth of Jesus' transforming work? Like as those who Jesus brought from death to life, as Jesus' new humanity, our relationship to everything has been changed from minutes to marriage. Each line in chapters four through six is a chance for you to challenge your practical atheism and to let Jesus transform your day-to-day -day life as you work out the implications and applications of the gospel and confront the pattern of the world that you've lived with and steeped in for so long. And so we're going to look at one as a case study for how to let Jesus transform our thoughts, feelings, and actions in a particular area so that we live a life marked by Jesus in all things. Which brings us to our text for today. And I know a couple of you are looking at your watch and you're like, just now we're getting to that? <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry much. It's going to be okay. So I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 33. If you want to join me there, and yes, we're at the age now where I need these. <clears throat> Here's the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Did anybody feel something in their body clench a little bit as I read this passage? Maybe a little uncomfortable right now? Good. Good. 
That tightening in you is a sign that there is a tension here between the pattern of the world and God's design. A great theologian once said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. We want God to confront us. And so I'm going to point out three of those areas where the world and God's design conflict. But first, before we can go much further, you have to decide whether you're going to default to what you've always thought and let the world shape how you understand the word in husband and wife relationships, or are you going to let the word, Jesus, shape how you understand the world? Because if you're not willing to be wrong in your default understanding, then you will always end up back in your default position. But if you're willing to let Jesus shape your view of the world, then you might end up back there, but you might end up somewhere different. And then you might just see the beauty of God's design and find a better way to live. So we start this beautiful passage uh, with the command, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I can't soften that word. I can't. It means pretty much what you think it means. Be subject to, be subordinate to. It is a hierarchical term which stresses the relation to those higher in the chain of command. And the context seems to confirm this, right? As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, in everything to their husbands. And so how does the church submit to Christ? Well, we listen to him. We depend upon him. We trust him. We follow him because he is our Lord, our head. So then, why does this command cause so much consternation? Well, for one, it's because many of us know men and women who have used this verse to, to demean, to abuse, to harm other women. It, it's happened. And we live in an age that reads this and says it's an archaic, misogynistic, evil way of thinking that lessens women, makes them less than. As a result, when we read it, the pattern of the world in us causes us to react like, is that really in the Bible? Surely Jesus doesn't mean what we think he means. And so we, pastors, Bible scholars, normal Christians, jump through hoops to soften the, the meaning or try to explain it away, even going so far as to reject the Bible or Christianity altogether because we just can't accept it. So has this passage been used to harm women? Yes, I cannot, I will not deny it, but that doesn't mean we throw the whole thing out. Bad people acted in bad faith and, I would argue, let their world shape the understanding, their understanding of this passage and not Christ. Their abuse was just as much a product of the pattern of this world as the rejection of this command is. And so the first point of conflict for you and for me is over authority. We're Americans, right? We don't want anyone to have authority over us. We kicked a bunch of people out of the country a couple hundred years ago just because of that. But it's not an American problem. It's not only an American problem. It's a human problem. Starting way back with Adam. I don't need God over me. I can be a better God for myself. And so there is this deep part of us that rejects any authority higher than us. And we also live in an age where authority has been conflated with power and worth. 
When you're a kid and someone tells you what to, what to do, what, what's your response to them? You're not the boss of me, right? Now, what comes next? Do you think you're better than me? Like even there, we, even as a child, we recognize that like for some reason, authority we tend to think of as valuable. There's an entire system of thought out there called intersectionality that uses power as the primary metric. There are power, there are groups with power and authority, and then there are marginalized groups, groups without power. Those with power and authority are then labeled bad, abusive, they are morally wrong, and then those without, well, they are morally good. And with this, they flip the idea of power on its head, power and authority on its head. The more marginalized groups you're part of, the more power and authority you actually have to tell others how to live and act. Implicit in this way of looking at the world is the notion that more power and more authority means I am more valuable. So even if you don't know the term, this is the air that we're breathing. This is the way of looking at the world all around us. And it doesn't help that we use words like superior or higher up when talking about authority. Those are words that ascribe value and worth. So then according to the pattern of this world, those with authority are more valuable. We want authority if we don't have it. Because only then can we be valuable. Can we have the worth we think we deserve? It's why politicians and actors, judges, police officers, and even pastors or other spiritual leaders can come to believe they are entitled to special treatment. Just because you're really good at pretending to be somebody else on a screen does not mean that you should get special treatment at the airport, right? But we feel that way, or we see people acting that way. So then when, when we hear the command, wives, submit to your husbands, we can't help but think this command makes wives lower and less valuable than husbands. Our world seems to have no framework for equality within authority. So what does the world say? Or sorry, what does the word say? Well, for one, in God's design, value and worth are not tied to authority. Value and worth are tied to being made in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, God made both men and women in the image of God, equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in worth. Each and every human being is, just because they are human, equally worthy of dignity and respect. And friends, we call this the Amago Day. If you were just to get this deep within you, it would transform how you live. That guy that you're avoiding eye contact with as you're driving and you see him on the side, he's a human being made in the image of God. He deserves eye contact and a welcome, a greeting, to be treated like human. And that's just one thing. Well, I'll stop. I got too many sermons to preach anyways. We are equal in dignity and worth. So wives and husbands stand before God as co-equals. We also know that in God's design, only God only God has authority over everything all the time. And then he, then he gifts authority to others. He sets the boundaries of nations, we're told in Acts. He sets rulers and governments over peoples for judgment and for blessing. This granted authority, though, is limited. It's limited in time, limited in scope, maybe even limited in geography. So, for example, the government has the power, the authority, we're told in Romans, of the sword to punish criminals. But if I'm obeying the law, power doesn't apply. 
If I move to a new nation, the laws of this nation no longer apply. And so here, the scope of submission is limited. A wife is only commanded to submit to her husband, not all women to all men. And anyone who tries to tell you differently from this passage is a wicked liar. In addition, this submission is voluntary. It's a voluntary submission among equals. Look back to verse 21. So actually in verse 18, Paul gives the command, be filled with the Spirit. And he gives four verbs to describe what that looks like. And one of them is, in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In the Christian community, we give other believers authority in our lives. We choose to submit to others. Sometimes we do that because it's the, it's the way that God ordered the church, like when we submit to the leadership of the elders. And sometimes we submit or we give authority to others because it's just loving. Like when we give authority to other members of the community to, to confront us when we're walking in sin. You, friends, have permission. If you see me walking in something the Bible clearly says, stop doing that, you have authority. I give you authority to come and talk to me about that, to confront me on that. I'm going to submit to you in that. But we also submit or give authority when uh, we take to heart when the community speaks the word to us. When I sit in the ABF and listen to our teachers, not all of them are elders, but they're giving us the word and I submit to them in that way. Or we submit when we voluntarily give up a practice like eating meat sacrificed to idols to protect the faith of a brother. Like I'm submitting. I'm giving you authority to tell me how to live my life. And we're doing it as co-equals. Contrary to the world's perspective, it is possible to be equal in value and still submit. And this is the same submission seen in verse 22. A wife voluntarily submits to her husband as a co-equal because in God's design, he has ordered the family such that the husband is the head. Now, why he's done that, we're going to get to in a moment. But first, we have to go to the second command or the second point where God's design and the world's pattern collide. And this concerns love. It's funny because um, we moderns get all worked up at the command to submit, but that's three lines long, right? 2,000 years ago, no one would have batted an eye at that. They'd be like, yes, that's how it works. Instead, it was the second command that would have had, Amen. that would have caused the controversy. And it's also why it's three times longer as, he, as Paul tries to explain it. Because what a Roman man would have expected to hear is, wives, submit to your husbands, and then husbands, make sure your wife submits to you. But what God says is, husbands, love your wives. And, and what's interesting is like, it's the, the notion that you should love your wife wasn't foreign, but it was a nicety in Roman times. Like it's, it, life is better when you both get along, but it's not important. It's not necessary. God comes along and through Paul says, love, husbands, love your wives. Here's the problem though. I don't know about you, but I hate the way we use the word these days. It has become a catch-all word that changes based on what you want it to mean. We live with slogans like love wins and love is love, but no one ever clarifies what they're saying. They don't clarify what they mean by love, and so it, it means anything you want it to mean. It means sentiment. It means compassion. It means passion and ardor and lust and attraction. It means enjoyment and delight. It is impulse and intoxication and feeling. That's love according to the world. But how does the word describe love? Well, here we are given two very clear examples to show us 
Not to tell us, but to show us what love is. First, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Love gives. It is self-sacrificing. It is focused on the other and goes to any length for that person. And, and notice Jesus gave himself up for the church for a purpose, to sanctify her, to present her, uh, to present her to himself in splendor, pure and holy and blameless. He sought her good. He sought her best at any cost. And so husbands, the command is to love our wives in that same way, sacrificing ourselves, our own needs and desires to seek her greatest good. And understand here, friends, this is not an impulsive thing. It's not a feeling thing. This is love born from the will. And it is a totally different kind of love than the world values and promotes. Husbands choose to give themselves to bring about good for their wives. And that alone is revolutionary today. To choose to love someone and to do so in a way that costs me, that's love? Well, yes, and there's more. We're then told, or the, the next illustration is, husbands, love your wife as you love your own body. Now listen, this is one of those examples that no one should argue with. Everybody loves their body. Even when we don't like our body, we still love our body. How do I know that? What do you do when you're hungry? You feed your body. What do you do when you're tired? You rest your body. You wash it. You clean it. You make it presentable. You care about your body. Any sane person understands we love our bodies. But Paul wants to make his sense clear, and so he uses the words nourish and cherish. A husband doesn't dispassionately sacrifice to seek the good for his wife. He cherishes her, values her, listens to her. And he nourishes this woman he's been entrusted with by providing what she needs physically, emotionally, socially. To change metaphors, she is a flower, a rose. And I know there might be some of you in here that says, well, my wife is more of a thorn bush. So be it. So be it. You're still going to water and care and work the soil and do all of the things necessary to make sure that this beautiful rose can flourish and bloom and thrive. That is how Christ loves his church. That's how you are to love your wife. And that's very different than the way the world feels about love. For the world, love is a feeling that you can fall into and fall out of. It's something you feel until you no longer feel it. It has limits. I will love you as long as you make me happy. It has conditions and stipulations. And the result is that the world's love is mostly concerned with self. However, God's design for love means it's something that endures and it gives. It is other-centered. I mean, how much do you think Jesus was thinking about himself when he chose the cross? So God's design confronts the world's pattern on authority and on love. And you know what? As controversial as those two are and were, it's actually not the biggest confrontation happening in this passage. Now, the biggest one concerns the whole purpose of marriage. According to the pattern of the world that we live in, marriage is a whole bunch of things, a tax write-off, you know. But mostly, it's an opportunity for people, I can't even say two anymore, but for people who love each other to commit to one another. And that commitment lasts as long as the love lasts. 
That's marriage. At the core, the pattern of the world says marriage is ultimately about me. My happiness, my self-actualization it's going to help me become the person I want to be. It's going to give me what I think I need. And here's where God's design rushes in and just blows up the world's pattern. Because what does Paul say the ultimate purpose of marriage is? It's not about you at all. It is a physical, visible symbol of Jesus in the church. It's a reflection of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Jesus. Marriage is about Jesus. I mean, here at the end of the passage, right, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We believe that that is God's institution of, the, of marriage, right? And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I'm actually saying it refers to Christ and the church. So from Genesis, when God gave Eve to Adam, their union and every union after was meant to prefigure Christ in the church, God and his people. And now after Christ, we see the fullness of it. We understand what the symbol is there for. Now the scripture says a lot about marriage. And yes, one of the designs for marriage is companionship. It was not good for man to be alone. God created a helper. And that's the closest to the world's sense. But there is so much more in God's design for marriage. It's richer and fuller and better. So let's get practical. Let's get in the ways that Jesus transforms how we live as husbands and wives. Notice again that the command is not husband, love your wife and make sure your wife submits to you. It's just husband, love your wife. Whether she responds or not, you are modeling Christ's love for the church. Because were you perfect when he died for you? Were you lovely and beautiful and spotless? No, you were in your sin. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That while you were still a sinner, while we were still rejecting and hating God, Jesus chose to love us. He chose the cross. He died in our place. He took the punishment we deserved. So yes, husbands, if your wife does not respond to your love with respect, so be it. The command is that you still love. And in so doing, you reflect the gospel, Christ's love for his church to the world. In God's design, marriage is not about you, but it's about Jesus. Love is not about you and your needs. It's about Christ and choosing to live for the one you love. And that means your submission is not about you, but Jesus. Again, the command is not wives, submit to your husbands and make sure your husband loves you. The submission here is a voluntary submission by a co-equal to the order of the family God has set forth so that you might model Christ in the church. It's an act of worship to God. Uh, Paul says, um, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And that's, that reveals this is your worship. So if your husband doesn't love you the way he should, when you still choose to submit, you model the church's response to Christ and you give people a picture of something much bigger, better, more beautiful. It's a better story. The world will not understand that submission and bad people will abuse it. But for those who belong to Jesus, we can know it leads to something far better. Now, please do not hear me say that if you are in an abusive marriage, you should stay there. If harm is happening, please get help. Let us help you get help. But Lord willing, that's not the situation most of us will find ourselves in. 
And there's an opportunity here through our submission to show the world something better. This is a lot easier when both parties, wife and husband, are filled with the Spirit, doing their part, which is why it's important to choose your partner well. But even if you didn't, even if your partner isn't committed to letting Jesus transform them, marriage is still about modeling Christ and the church. And that changes how we live with a husband or a wife. Now, when I was talking this through with my wife recently, she said, but David, you still haven't told me what it looks like to submit You're right. Many commentators noted it would have been great if Paul had given us a little bit more instruction about what submission looks like, but he doesn't. He only gives us this much because I believe in the wisdom of God, he's giving us a timeless principle. If he'd given us too many specifics, it would have tied submission to a particular time in a particular place, and then we would have either followed it in a way that doesn't fit, or we would have been that much quicker to toss it out as a cultural thing. Every couple is different. You are married to a particular husband and to a particular wife. You live in a particular time. So submission is going to look different. But maybe this will help. Um, In The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, which I highly recommend, Kathy gives an example for what submitting to her husband looked like. They had moved so that Tim could teach at a seminary. They bought a house. But it became quickly obvious that Tim's salary wasn't going to be enough. So Kathy went out and got a job. Each morning, she would leave for work while her husband's more flexible schedule meant he stayed home to get the kids off to school. In the summer, he'd watch them while she worked. And so in her words, an outsider looking at our marriage would have thought a role reversal was going on. Quite the contrary. Although the superficial details of who did what had changed, I, Kathy, was still bringing my gifts as a strong helper to him making it possible for him to teach. It's one example. So here's my best attempt at a summary of God's design for husband and wife relationships lived out in the modern age. It's a husband who is devoted to his wife, not necessarily because she deserves it, but because of Jesus, who gives of himself to cherish her and to nourish her and to seek what is best for her. And it's a wife who stands with her husband as a co-equal, respecting her husband, not necessarily because he deserves it, but because of Jesus, submitting and supporting her husband in his calling so that together they can accomplish both of their callings. And in this way, they display a visible symbol of Christ and the church to the world. Friends, as those who have been brought by Jesus from death into life. As those Jesus has made a new humanity, our relationship to everything has changed from minutes to marriage. And it is a travesty of the highest order that we have grown complacent and content to let Jesus only change our hearts. The fact that we've traded the amazing and beautiful spiritual blessings of Jesus for practical atheism and secularism with a twist ought to break our hearts. And it's time to stop it. We have been given the Spirit of God and filled with that Spirit, we can see and live out God's design for everything in creation. If only we would stop limiting Jesus to just changing our hearts. Let him change everything in you everything about you. And it starts by trusting Jesus. 
And so if you're here this morning and something in this conversation shook you or drew you to want to know more about this Jesus who loved you perfectly, who loved you completely, who transforms you, then I want to invite you to trust him. To believe he died for you and brings you into his family. And then I want to ask you to talk to somebody about this. Talk to me, talk to one of our deacons. We, we want to help you to know Jesus more. And now for those of us here who already belong to Christ, the way we relate to our spouse as a husband or a wife should look different than your neighbors. And when both husband and wife belong to Christ, that whole marriage should look different than our neighbors. Jesus transforms everything. Let him. And we work through one area of life, but there are countless others. Maybe for you, you're like, why are we talking about marriage? Fine. Singleness. Whether you're single for the first time or single again, Jesus transforms your singleness. In, in the scriptures, he talks about it. How? Work through that. Don't be content to just settle for what you've always known. Maybe you don't want to be single. Well, then how does he transform dating and what you're willing to give as you pursue a mate, what you're looking for in a mate? Well, let's go outside of that because there's far more. It's not just dating and relationships. What about the church? I'll be straight. This is one of my big heartbeats, but most of us in the West— have a view of the church that is more greatly shaped by the world and how the world says community ought to work than by what the scriptures say. And I, I don't blame anybody. It's not like it's your fault. You've been, you grew up with this. This is how you were taught. And I think it's way off what the scriptures teach. What if you were to investigate that? What if you were to figure out, hey, how do I live with other Christians in the church? I've already offended half of you guys. Let's get the rest of you. Work. Okay? God is a working God. The word used to describe work in the scriptures is one of working with your hands, right? That work is a creation ordinance. You and I were made for work. We find fulfillment rightly in our work. And yes, it's, fall, it's, a, it's past the fall, but so it gets frustrated and it's difficult, but it's still good. You're not a wage slave. You've been given a gift. And let's talk about retirement for a second because this is the big one. Do you really think that God intended you to spend the last 20, 30 years of your life playing golf or traveling to the seashore and collecting seashells? Is retirement from everything what he has for you? When he calls you home, what are you going to do? Hey God, here's my golf cart. I finally shot my age. Or, or here God, as John Piper famously said, here are my seashells. Look at my collection. Is that retirement? Is that what God has for our life? I don't think so. Jesus transforms everything. Challenge the way you have always thought and felt and acted in your walk with Jesus because ignorance or inertia are not an excuse for settling for secularism with a twist. Instead, seek Christ and let him transform more and more of your life. We have been brought by Jesus from death to life. We are today a new humanity and our relationship to everything has been changed from minutes to marriage. So be filled with the Spirit See and live out God's design for everything in creation. Stop limiting Jesus to a change of your heart and let him change everything in you. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for listening. Let me pray. Father, merciful Lord, we come before you and we just ask for mercy. We ask for grace because Lord, we have settled. We have settled to, to be content to know you, to know that you're there, but then to live as though you don't exist day to day. 
And I, I confess that. I ask for your forgiveness and I ask that you would break me of that. Father, you've given us your word. You have given us everything in Christ. You have made us new. Lord, help us to walk in that newness, to no longer settle for, I just don't know, or this is the way I've always done it, but to really dig in and understand and change how we live. May we be transformed by Christ in all things. You've given us your spirit. May we walk in that. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.